0: Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication, like writing, music and art. It goes back to the origins of human history. And now, money is changing fast in a way that will affect all of us. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. We now make payments with our phones, not with notes and coins. But as payments get faster, cheaper and digital other aspects of money become more complex. Anyone reliant on cash is at risk of being excluded from the new financial system. Digital money is easily traceable, so who gets to monitor what we spend? There's increasing concern about what happens to our payments data, which are the most valuable digital records of all. In some areas of money, criminals and fraudsters are having the time of their lives. New and more inventive scams arrive by the week. What is the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook and the Chinese tech giants who are moving quickly into money? The new Money Review podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each episode we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in this crucial area. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, why not stay in touch with our future releases? You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or your usual podcast provider. My guest on this week's podcast, Victor Schwetz, specialises in the intersection between finance, technology, politics, and history. Victor grew up in the former Soviet Union before moving to Australia in his early 20s. He then embarked on a highly successful career in investment banking, which saw him work in Australia, Hong Kong, London, Moscow and New York. He's recently published a new book called The Great Rupture, about what he sees as a major turning point in human history, and that's the period we are currently living through. I found the book thought-provoking, convincing and honestly a little scary at times. I'm delighted he's joined us to talk about his work. Victor, welcome to the new Money Review podcast. You recently published a book called The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points and the Future of Humanity. What prompted you to write this book?
1: Well, there is a lot of books in the marketplace uh, explaining why certain countries or civilizations succeeded, certain countries failed. There is a lot of books in the marketplace on technology and how technology evolves. There is a lot of books on economics and debt, and what happens when the countries become indebted, and what their future. Uh, There's a lot of books on history, but I haven't found one which actually combines all of those elements together. Uh, In other words, just because something succeeded in the last uh, 200 years or 300 years, doesn't mean that that's exactly the formula for success to go forward. Uh, At the same time, technology impacts us in very different ways today than it used to. So what does information age do to us? Uh, And and finally, if you look at debt, if you look at financial markets, how we run our economies, what does it do to us, to our future, to countries? Uh, And the whole idea was to say that the recipe for success over the last 500 years is changing very rapidly. Uh, It's not going to be the same recipe. It's not going to be the same answers. Uh, and the question it raised is really, what do you need to be successful as an individual, as a country, as a civilization? Uh, and at the same time, we asked uh, whether, in fact, uh, do you need to be free? Do you need to enjoy the same degree of freedom that clearly the last two, or 300 years afforded to you? Uh, is it possible to be wealthy, prosperous, and even innovative, uh, even though you don't enjoy are uh, the same degree of freedom. So it's a book combining... Let me, let me stop you there,
0: Victor, and ask you a question about the. Um, your, uh, an example you give early on in your book, that you compare uh, two cities that face each other across the Pacific Ocean, San Francisco and Vladivostok, and you say that one has clearly become you know, very wealthy, perhaps the most wealthy city in the world, and the other one is still... Mired in depression, I guess is the right way to put it. So why in the past did societies need to be free to be prosperous? Uh,
1: because in the past, societies were clearly driven uh, by what I would describe as liberal capitalism. Uh, in other words, the recipe for success was greater and greater freedom. Greater freedom to interact, greater freedom to explore greater freedom to deploy your capital the way you want to Uh, and that applied both to labor it applies to capital it applies to capitalism Uh, and so the recipe for success was freedom now vladivostok never had this freedom while san francisco did and so two different two identical cities started almost at the same time in the 19th century faced a very very different future so the essence of the loss of the lessons of the last 500 years Without freedom, you can't have prosperity, wealth, or innovation.
0: So why, is it, why, is that, why may that uh, association between freedom and prosperity no longer be true? You, you, you argue in your book that that association may no longer be true in a data-driven information age. Why is that?
1: Um, because there are fundamental differences between industrial age and information age. Uh, in the industrial age, Uh, Generally speaking, capital was scarce, had to be allocated in a very systematic way. That's why we have a double entry bookkeeping. That's why we have a discounted cash flow models. In industrial age, most of the activities were highly capital intensive, things of roads, railways, factories. Uh, In industrial age, labor was a primary productivity driver. That is why you had You had to eliminate illiteracy and you had to skill labor to ever high levels. In industrial age, uh, the improving quality of labor, improving productivity, created middle class, created this freedom. Now, in information age, uh, we are actually drowning in capital rather than having a shortage of capital. Uh, And in fact, we have five, ten times as much capital as we require. And as we continue to generate more capital than we need, cost of capital inevitably continues to fall through the time. Now, secondly, most activities these days are not very capital intensive. Um, And the reason for that, the new technology provides you with a much greater opportunities for synergistic benefits, for spillover effects. So in other words, scalability of technology is much higher. In the olden age, in industrial age, capacity constraints were real. If you run out of capacity, you have to build another factory. In digital age, there are capacity constraints, but they're much more fluid. Also, in the new information age, labor is no longer the primary uh, productivity driver. In fact, labor consistently is losing both marginal relevance and marginal pricing power. So one of the things we discussed in the book, if neither capital nor labor functions the way it did over the previous several hundred years, then what we have right now is not capitalism. It's just a question, what, what do we have? How we define it? Um, and what are the rules of that new world?
0: You also, in your book, tie the what you see as the growing <clears throat> instability of the global economy to the collapse of the Bretton Woods post-World War II fixed exchange rate system in the early 1970s and the extreme increase we've seen since then in financial leverage, the amount of debt in the global economy. Why do you think that has created a, uh, you know, why do you think that has added to the is that coincidental or is that part of the same
1: story? Uh, Paul, the way, the way I describe in the book, uh, we are rushing towards a black hole. Um, and on the other side of the black hole, a different world lies. Uh, and what actually rushes us towards a black hole, a black hole uh, is really what I describe as Fujiwara effect. Fujiwara effect is when the two hurricanes combine into one hurricane and become much, much stronger. What are those two hurricanes? One is financialization, the other one is technological age or information age. Now, information age or technology progression is purely expression of human spirit. Humans were always inventive, um, and there's nothing wrong intrinsically and and, and nothing untoward of being technologically very inventive. However, financialization accelerating the pace of technological progression. Because the way I look at it is that uh, technology itself is a human spirit, but the speed with which it progresses depends on the cost of capital. The lower the cost of capital, the faster it progresses. Uh, Effectively, any idea gets very easily funded. Uh, And a low cost of capital is like pouring a kerosene uh, on the bonfire of the information age, accelerating uh, the progress of technology, accelerating Uh, Disintermediation of labor, disintermediation of capital. Now, financialization itself is a self-inflicted wound. In other words, we didn't have to have it. Technology would still be progressing, perhaps not as fast as what we have experienced. Perhaps transition would have been longer. But financialization is a self-inflicted wound. And one of the things the book describes is that why have we decided as society, to embark on this process of financialization in 1980s. Of course, nobody decided anything. We just stumbled uh, into it. But the key element was that productivity growth rates started to slow down in 1970s and 1980s in the developed countries. In other words, the benefits of the first and the second industrial revolution have already been absorbed. And we were just at the earliest stage of the third industrial revolution or information age. And as productivity rates decline, society refused to accept that we no longer deserve the money we are making, we no longer deserve the wealth that we have, and in fact, society has insisted on the perpetual growth and the perpetual wealth creation, irrespective of consequences, whether they're environmental, uh, whether they're societal. And the only answer in an economy that is suffering from declining productivity and insist on maintenance of growth rates is financialization, is to bring future consumption to the present. Uh, and that's what we did. Paul Walker, uh, the guy who slaughtered inflation, actually started our in the financialization age. There, he was the one who created a system that is addicted to debt, addicted to asset prices, uh, addicted to volatility of asset prices. Uh, Alan Greenspan then just took it one step further in 1987 by introducing by introducing uh, what become known as the green spend put. Uh, and that is that central banks no longer willing or able to tolerate any asset price volatility. And after that, it's just too cold. So if you think of an average economy uh, back in 50s or 60s or 70s, it required about a dollar, a dollar 50 of debt and liquidity for every dollar of GDP today, depending on the economy, requires three to five times uh, of, of debt for every dollar of GDP. If you think of uh, liquidity or financialization, it's even higher. It's anywhere from five to 10 times for every dollar of GDP. And having embarked on that course, having embarked on a course of continuous dependence on asset prices and leverage, we can never get off that, uh, uh, that carousel. We can never get off Uh, And and so we continue on this path primarily because there is no answer. But the problem is the longer you continue to financialize, the more you grow money supply faster than nominal GDP. The more you create disinflation rather than inflation. The more money gets stuck in a cloud of finance rather than going in the ground where people live. The more you create uh, pockets of growth in an environment of very limited growth. The more you create wealth and income inequalities so if we continue on this path of financialization ultimately societies uh, will simply fall apart and that is why over the last five or six years societies started to insist that some of that money in a cloud of finance must be directed to the ground where people live so the bottom line becomes what financializations have done is accelerated technological innovation and technological progress and accelerated our decline towards uh, the black hole.
0: Let, let me. Before, I'd like to ask you about the broader societal impact of these uh, trends in a minute. But I'd like to first ask you about uh, finance and interest rates, because you described uh, Volcker's arrival as the beginning of this financial financialization trend. Uh, I remember that in the early 1980s, U.S. interest rates were at or above, I think, 20% for a a short time. Clearly, we've we've now seen rates steadily decline for nearly four decades, and almost everywhere there's at or near zero. In some cases, even um, negative. Um, what what do you, what's the it, you know does this trend have? Are we are we heading in the direction of negative interest rates? What, what's the kind of logical conclusion of of, uh, of what's what you've described?
1: Well, what Paul Walker did um, is that uh, he decided that the future of the U.S. economy, the future of the U.S. market uh, is consumption-driven and the future is debt and asset price-driven. In other words, he replaced uh, what was a Bretton Woods system with a chaos uh, through the 70s, and he says, okay, there is a new business model. Now, he was assuming that this business model at some point in time will get rebalanced, but it never did. Uh, And so having embarked on this treadmill of depending on asset prices, depending on debt, uh, there is no way out, which means cost of capital must fall forever. Eventually, money is worth nothing. Uh, and, and so you say, how come if money is worth nothing, how come we're not generating inflation? Because money uh, and excess money is supposed to be an inflationary element. Well, the answer to that is very, very simple that in an over-leveraged, over-financialized, an asset-dependent economy, you do not get conventional CPI. Instead, what you get, you get asset prices. So if you think of two lines, one is a nominal GDP line. If you place it in 1980s at 100, almost at any country, whether it's US, UK, Australia, doesn't matter, and you put money supply on the same line, you will find that money supply grew in that 30-year period three, four times faster than nominal GDP. Now, what's the difference between those two lines? Asset prices. This is your 401k. This is your pension plan. This is the house you're living in. Uh, And so when a lot of investors say, we must at some point in time reset it. Well, the question is, are you ready for reset? Are you ready to recognize that you have no pensions? Are you ready to recognize that social security is broke? Are you ready to recognize that the house you're living is only worth a fraction what you paid for it? Uh, And the answer is no, nobody is prepared to recognize it. And so there is no way of getting up this treadmill, but what you can do, you can slow the process down. And the only way you can slow the process down is by recalibrating policies from monetary to fiscal. It's nothing to do with private sector. Private sector will never walk again under its own steam. It's not the private sector. It's a public sector. Just change the policy mix. It doesn't, change the final outcome but what it does do it slows the process
0: yeah you make in your book uh, you make some uh, quite startling predictions about private property and you argue that the traditional concept of private property even the traditional concept of the corporation may now be obsolete and that ownership uh, rights may may change into just uh, a more may change into a more feudal concept of a right of access why, why do you think we may all have to rethink our concepts of private property?
1: Uh, because most of the things, uh, if, if, if you think in the olden age, or let's say olden age, industrial age, uh, private property was the bedrock of development. Uh, whatever you have created, you had a right to exploit over a period of time. Uh, the same applied to education. You have to pay for your education because that's a capital that you're creating, uh, that you need to pay for in order to draw down it in salary or another form uh, over sort of subsequent years of your life. Now, increasingly, most of the things we do are either free or near free. In other words, marginal co- one of the things technology does, it reduces marginal cost of everything down to zero or close to zero. Whether it's a cost of downloading the movie, whether it's a cost of playing uh, the song, whether it's a cost of accessing uh, information, almost whether it's a cost of trading on New York Stock Exchange, everything gravitating to zero. Now, the way I describe it in the book, there are three stages in, um, in information age. The first one was between 1980 and 2000, and that was mostly PC-based. That was mostly enterprise and state and efficiency-based. After 2000, we finally got the right network, the the right tools in order to develop very broadly based digital and consumer based products. That's your downloads, that's your ordering your pizza, uh, that is uh, trading on the stock exchanges, whatever that is. Now, the next 20 years will be all about disintermediation of atoms of physical matter. Uh, In other words, we will be eliminating factories, we will be eliminating supply and value chains. Uh, robotics, automation, merger of infotech and biotech will be incredibly interesting as it progresses over the next uh, uh, several decades. It's going to be alternative transportation platform, energy platforms. And what all of those things do, they gradually reduce marginal pricing of everything, including your manufacturing goods, to zero. Then after that period comes singularity. That's not going to happen until somewhere in late 2030s or maybe middle 2040s. Uh, But that is a point at which you will not differentiate between human and non-human contribution. Uh, At that point in time, thinking outside the box... Uh, or being inventive, will no longer be the area that humans excel. Uh, And so what happens increasingly, profession after profession, job after job, uh, starting with entertainers, then moving into equity traders and portfolio managers, uh, moving into editorial departments, newspapers, then gradually moving on the construction side, factories, uh, taxi drivers, truck drivers, Uh, gradually everybody gravitate towards uh, zero. Now, at that point in time, Everybody is sharing most of the things that are important. It's no longer exclusively your property in many ways. But what you can have, you can have a right to use that property for a period of time. And that was very much a feudal idea of right of usage uh, rather than uh, an exclusive property right that you have. Now, the question is whether that elimination of property right uh, effectively leads you to the next stage. Uh, and say, how do you innovate? Why do you innovate? Why do you invent? Uh, how do you manage economies like that? Uh, and, and, and the answer is that uh, one assumes that the same uh, artificial intelligence, the same computational power, will gradually be eliminating human factor in inventiveness. It starts with innovation and application of tools, which we're doing already, uh, but then it gradually moves up the scale. And so economy no longer would require as much human input uh, in any of those areas, which means it might remain inventive. The same applies to how you manage the economy. This is when I referred to socialist calculation debate of 1920s, 1940s, when a lot of socialists believe that um, sort of central allocation of capital can be much more rational and effective uh, than Adam Smith's invisible hand. Now, it failed, of course, all across the world. But the question is, has it failed because it's wrong? Or has it failed because people didn't have the computational power to be able to do this? So if you were to argue that computational power will be there, then what China is trying to prove right now as we speak, uh, that in fact central allocation of capital could be more rational and fairer than Adam Smith's sort of invisible hand. The same applies to corporations you've managed mentioned what is it in the essence of cooperation? Cooperation are there to reduce transaction costs and to mobilize capital and resources. Uh, if you say transaction costs are going to zero, information costs are going to zero, there is plenty of capital around, uh, then what why do you need the corporation for? Why do you need a beast that is actually Stalinist beast of sort of central control in the heart of the capitalist economy? Uh, and the answer you don't need them anymore. Uh, eventually, uh, it's going to be a bunch of people getting together, uh, having a good idea. Uh, They will be able to fund it in various forms. Uh, They flare up in the sky for six, 12 months, and they disappear, and the new bunch of people will come along. And so this idea of having a long-living corporation living in its own name, transacting uh, in its own name, uh, will seem ridiculous. Uh, And so... The way I look at it, whether it's private property rights, whether it's a corporate, whether how you allocate capital, the role of the state in allocation of capital versus private sector, all of that uh, is going to change, and all of that is going to change in as little as twenty to thirty years from now.
0: Right. So you, you I mean, you, um, you talked about the role of the central planners. I guess is the right word, and um, I. I remember in your book you you write about uh, the experiments in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and early 1930s with central planning of uh, of pricing and and production and most historians take it that that was a you know a, a disaster over the long term it didn't work Absolutely. but you're, you're saying that with with modern uh, technology it might be worth another try at this
1: that's right <laughs> that's right uh, so if you're of experiments if you're thinking of bukharin uh, Uh, starting Goss Plan in the Soviet Union, Uh, if you think of uh, Allende trying to do it in Chile in early 1970s, Uh, if you think of uh, Mao Zedong China uh, in 1960s, Uh, whatever you look at it, it was a disaster. And nobody would argue with that, that it was a disaster. Uh, All I'm saying is the question is, and that was the original socialist calculation debate, which died by 1950s because nobody believed uh, central planning was good anymore, whether in fact that debate uh, was correct in the sense that it's actually better to centrally allocate capital rather than leaving it to the market. Now, could you have a hybrid case? Well, of course you could. If you think of 1940s and 1950s, even into I guess middle of 1960s, uh, the original macroeconomists like John Maynard Keynes, like Gelbright, they did not believe that private sector is necessarily always better at allocating capital. They didn't believe that public sector is always necessarily inefficient or poor at allocation of capital. Um, And the reason they didn't believe any of that, because they remembered how poorly private capital allocated capital in 1920s and 1930s. Uh, If you see today, younger generation, generally speaking, do not look at the government as inefficient. They don't look at the government as restrictive. They look at the government as a guardrail against anything that is going on all around them. Uh, and they subscribe very similar to their grandparents or grand-grandparents to the idea that it's not automatically true that private sector solutions are always the best. And the reason for that, they saw how badly private entities can allocate capital as they did over the last 20 or 25 years. So my view is that, first of all, there is an argument whether this idea of Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher and Milton Friedman and Ronald Coase and the rest of them, that private sector solutions are always better and more efficient, whether that is valid, I think it's been proven to be not valid. Uh, And therefore, the mix of the two is appropriate. But then beyond that, uh, you can argue that as technology proliferates, as technology progresses, as jobs atrophy, as professions atrophy, as corporate atrophy, can you have uh, a reasonable and viable central allocation of capital? And the answer, it's possible that you will be able to do that.
0: Right. And in your book, you make, uh, I I guess, uh, the the correct word is, you know, highly controversial prediction that the future for most of us is going to look much more like Russia and China's political system than what what people in the West have been accustomed to.
1: Well, it's actually a warning. Why it's actually that? a warning rather than rather than a prediction. Um, all the book is trying to say is that the mixture of technology and financialization could lead us uh, into the world where um, freedoms that we cherish, that freedoms that we enjoy. After all, I was born in the Soviet Union. I got out and I enjoyed Western freedom, and I don't want to experience what I experienced when I was a younger person. Uh, and so. And so it's more like a warning saying that that's Fujiwari fact of a merger of financialization and technology could lead us into the world whereby freedom becomes optional. We all accept. We all accept that going forward, we will have less freedom. No question about it. Baby boomers' obsession with freedom, choice, efficiency led to many bad outcomes, from environmental degradation to income and wealth inequality. So everybody understands, I think, that going forward, we will have less freedom. Going forward, emphasis on fairness, uh, equality, uh, will be far more prevalent. We accept that. But the, the book asks a question, can we keep as much of that freedom as possible, even as we progress on this unavoidable path? towards something that looks like communism, towards something that looks like uh, that labor in capital markets will not work the same way, capital will not function the same way. Uh, And the answer in the book is that, yes, but you need to have the right policy or embrace the right policies. And we can go through four or five policies that I think will protect as much freedom uh, as we possibly can.
0: Let me just, uh, in the few minutes we have remaining, let me just turn to um, financial markets again, because you've talked about the disappearance of interest rates. You've talked about the corporation in its classical form maybe being obsolete. What does that mean for an investor? You've you've said that the central banks are very keen to prop up asset prices, but uh, where should one, if if one has a reasonably long-term horizon, where should one think of deploying one's capital to invest?
1: Well, <clears throat> over the longer term, uh, really longer term, 12, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, I don't think there is such thing as capital or investment. Uh, all of that all of that yeah. will largely dissipate. Uh, but if you start looking a little bit more shorter term, if we start looking more like 5, 10 years rather than 20 or 30 years out, um, I, 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 I do believe that we're still residing in a largely disinflationary world. Uh, unlike, uh, let's say, the last 25 years, which were consistently disinflationary, Uh, because we had a period of extreme uh, financialization, extreme digitalization, extreme globalization, all disinflationary pressures. This time around, we will have some inflationary pressures as well. So when people say, oh my God, we're going back to 60s and 70s, no, we are not. Oh my God, uh, 90s and 1000s are about the right, no, they are not. The coming period will be different. It will have strong elements of disinflation but it will also have elements of inflation. And the reason for that <clears throat> is very simple, that societies demand that this excess capital find its way exactly where people want to see that capital, not in Rembrandt paintings, not, not in Hampton's mansions, not in bitcoin where people actually want to see it. Uh, and that by itself implies that the role of the state is expanding, fiscal policy is expanding, minimum income guarantees is a must, Healthcare spending will be. So a lot of things with a low multipliers, but nevertheless are likely to be more inflationary. We also need to invest more in a digital infrastructure as we go forward. So this time around, we have, unlike the last 25 years, we have strong disinflationary and strong inflationary forces working at the same time. But if you take five, 10 years, disinflation will win. Uh, there will be occasional inflationary scares, but disinflation will win which means bonds are good. They're not bad. Anybody who argues this is the end of 30-year bull market in bonds are going to be proven wrong. The second thing I think you can draw from this is that central banks increasingly are trying to control both supply of money as well as the price of money. So long as we don't have consistently very strong inflationary pressures, they will keep the capacity to control not just money but also risk premium whether it's a debt risk premium or whether it's equity risk premium. Therefore, all of those people who are saying, oh my God, we must reset the system, they'll be like a Cassandra. Uh, They will never be believed. Uh, And with a good justification, unlike Cassandra, with a good justification. Uh, And justification essentially is there will be no blowouts. Uh, There will be no reset of our system. We can't reset uh, what we have done. It's like a doomsday clock. You can't reset it. Uh, And so the idea that somehow some of the asset prices will blow up is wrong. And the third area, uh, if you start looking in terms of equities, uh, to me, um, the large digital consumer platforms are sunsetting. Uh, They're suffering from diseconomies of scale rather than economies of scale. They're going to be attacked uh, both from a political, regulatory, and societal level. On the bottom, they will be attacked by some of the uh, startups. Most of the digital manipulators are not very good at physical matter, so they won't be able to transit to the next stage of evolution of information age. But there are areas of the future. What are those areas of the future? First of all, commodities that you need to build that future. Uh, semiconductors are a commodity that is needed. Uh, you know, Lithium, copper, cobalt, nickel, uh, rare earths. That's one area. The other area is capital goods companies that actually will build this future for you. The third area are the startups that actually would use this future, either for robotics, automation, alternative energy, alternative transportation. So to me, that is your future as you go forward. And some of those companies in those three buckets within the next 10 years will be bigger than a Facebook. They're going to be bigger than Apple. Uh, and, And... And that's the area to dedicate your resources. Don't fight the trend. Uh, Don't fight against the revolution. Join the revolution.
0: Victor, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, Please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.